The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. A reading from the book of Genesis. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother, Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. The word of the Lord. Reading from 1 Peter. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that, it, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said that to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell, the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift and there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The Gospel of the Lord. Did well. Good morning. My name is Andine O'Neill. I'm the pastor of Worship Arts, so if I'm, an over, I'm over there, today I get to be here. It's my privilege. So I have three young kids, um, ages eight, seven, and five, and they often have so much fun together. Whether it's collaborating nicely in imaginative games or sports or outside play or other weird made-up games, like one called Dodge Puck Clamshell, which I'll let you ask them about later, but yes, it involves an empty plastic clamshell package. And then there is the fighting. Oh, we know it's totally normal, but here's what they say every time one of their siblings injures them. Dashing into the room breathless, they fill in the blank, hit me, kick me, ran into me, whatever, as hard as they could on purpose. 
That is honestly their immediate, almost liturgical response to anything that happens to them at the hand of one of their siblings. It's automatic. And sometimes they actually might be a little hurt, and sometimes they just really aren't. Sean and I will see an accidental elbow brush the ribs of another, and the immediate response is, so-and-so elbowed me as hard as they could on purpose. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense at all. Like someone breathed on them wrong. And they'll still scream, they breathed on me as hard as they could on purpose. <laughs> Sean and I just have to look at each other and laugh. Um, so that's pretty lighthearted stuff. But throughout history, siblings have sometimes really honestly had it out for one another. In fact, as our Old Testament reading shows us, the brokenness of the fall can give evil a hold and lead sibling fighting even to murder. It certainly does seem like Cain struck Abel as hard as he could on purpose. And God has absolutely no tolerance for that. Yes, we have arrived this week at the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And though it seems simple, there's actually a lot to consider. So together we're gonna answer the following questions. One, definitions. What is murder? Who is the author of life? Why are we absolutely to never commit this? Number two, how do we become people of God who really, really, truly value the lives of others? And number three, how do we respond when faced with individuals who don't value our life? We're going to see that a kingdom heart transformed by the in, from the inside out by the God's extravagant love protects and proclaims the value of human life. So first, what's murder? Murder is the destruction of the existence of a person made in the image of God. Murder does such violence to someone created in God's likeness, whose breath was given by him, whose hairs were counted by him, whose very being was formed in the womb of their mother by him, that they cease breathing, their heart stops pumping, and their life on earth ends. The word used here is specifically murder and not a more broad term that could mean kill. So God is commanding that his people not willfully cause deprivation of human life without lawful justification. If we were going to discuss all forms of killing, such as in the case of self-defense or warring nations, this sermon would get very convoluted. Um, but murder, murder is specific and irreducible. It is someone taking a life that never belonged to them in the first place. It was not theirs to take. Why is it not theirs to take? Because God, as we know, is the creator and author of all life. Genesis tells us he literally breathed life into Adam and Eve. And throughout all scriptures, we see God creates life and calls it forth even before one is born. Male and female, the image of God, we are all image bearers. Throughout all time and around the world, what a beautiful thing to think of us all so connected, all loved by the same Father, all marked by him bearing his image. And this is why murder pains the Father, why in the first murder of Scripture, the blood of Abel calls out, cries out to God, why right after the people of God walked through the Red Sea, leaving violent captivity, God gives this very clear, very to-the-point commandment, do not murder. Take your freedom seriously. Now you have the responsibility to protect and cherish life. Now you should live in such a way that you also value your lives the way I've valued them. But we have not. We have not done that. Murder 
in its most undebatable outright form occurs regularly. Our hearts break for this loss of life, precious in God's sight. This is not the way it was supposed to be. Lives cut short. And then there are forms of taking life that seem up for debate. Just how precious is the life of an unborn child or the final years of the aged, etc. And certainly at a personal level, these are things we need to treat with great gentleness and love and care for those grappling with these issues. I also think we need to be very clear that these viewpoints tragically mistake who the author of life is and understand and underestimate the gift of life. This is not the way it was supposed to be, not at all. To this we say, Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. We do lament the loss of life in this broken world. We lament the situations that lead people into places of desperation and pain and grief. And I just need to add, please remember, no one is beyond God's forgiveness and restoration. I don't want this lament to condemn any person. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, and he forgives, forgives all sins and welcomes us if we just ask. God is not a God of death, as we see. He is a God of life, and he offers life anew to anyone, no matter what, even right now. So, but what do we do with the fact that murder is a part of our world? Certainly, there is much to be said for working within the structures of laws and government to affect change, but I don't think sermons are the best place to discuss such things. Today, I want to talk about our hearts. I'm going to use a term I'm stealing from the great Dallas Willard. I want to talk about having a kingdom heart. And the kingdom heart, transformed from the inside out by God's extravagant love, protects and proclaims the value of human life. So point number two, how do we become people who really, truly value the lives of others with this kind of consistency? For this, we're going to look at our Matthew passage. You might find it helpful to turn there. It's in your bulletin. We're jumping into Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't you dare relax the commands or worse, teach others to do so. The law was precious to Jesus. One commentator said, this is Jesus' only book review. And he says, the law is precious to me. I have come to fulfill it, to fill it full. And Jesus fills the you shall not murder commandment very full. Here's what he says. You've heard it said don't murder, but I say anyone who is angry will be judged. Anyone who insults his brother will be brought before the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, first, he's not saying that no one should ever get angry or have passing anger. Anger is a natural emotion, and sometimes it's actually a necessary or even a godly one, considering that God gets angry at things like murder. But what is described here is a continual anger, the kind when you nurse a grudge when anger is harbored and fed, kept alive in your heart. He secondly addresses the concept of insulting a brother. The first insult uses this word 
raka, simply meaning something like empty-headed, and scholars believe this word was actually formed to make the sound of gathering spit in your mouth in order to, as the context implies, spit in someone in derision, on someone in derision. For this, you should be brought before the Sanhedrin, their supreme court, kind of. And the second insult, you fool. Now, you fool does not do this Greek justice. The Greek here actually carried the contempt of a vile, curse-ridden statement. It is meant to shockingly demean and devalue the recipient. Doing this, Jesus says, you'd be liable to the hell of fire. What's Jesus doing here? He is trying to unsettle us. Most of us have not committed murder. Perhaps this is a commandment you feel like you can keep on autopilot. It doesn't really require a lot of effort, so it kind of feels like a freebie. But in such a mindset, Jesus is saying, we miss the fullness of the commandment. We miss the point. Because I'm sure we have harbored anger. I'm sure we have insulted others. I'm sure we have at times kept frustration and annoyance and bitterness at a certain point in our hearts that it's ready to spill out onto others. So what should we do? Jesus explains that as someone is offering their gift at the altar and they remember that another has a conflict with them, they should stop, leave the gift, go and reconcile with their brother and sister before returning to offer the gift. Jesus could literally have not used a stronger example. This was the most solemn, important thing the Jewish people did. It was their interaction with God, bringing their gift to the altar. This would be like, we just had a confirmation service a few weeks ago. Imagine our youth in the midst of confirmation. They're dressed up, it's fancy, it's important. They were walking up to the bishop himself, seated in his chair up here. The bishop's gonna lay his hands on them and pray for them and confirm them. Mid-step, they remember they'd wronged somebody. They stop. They excuse themselves from the sanctuary. They go and make friends, that's what reconcile means, with the other before returning to be confirmed. The illustration is to emphasize not only the importance, but also the urgency of making peace. Jesus gives another example. He says that if someone is accusing or suing you of something, possibly over a debt, you should come to terms peaceably and quickly, either before you go to court or as you go to court, or you too will be handed over to prison. So even in the uncomfortable legal dispute, where it's so natural to view the other person with anger and frustration, don't make your opponent into an outright enemy, but seek peace and love wherever you can. So what's he saying here? Jesus is saying that if we view one another as less than human, if we harbor contempt or nurse anger, if we view one another as not worthy of our love, then we are working contrary to God's redemptive goals. Again, Willard says, anger embraced is, accordingly, inherently disintegrative of human personality and life. Now, it's possible to not murder anyone, but maintain a heart prone to anger. This is not the kind of kingdom heart we're supposed to have. And it is painful and burdensome to live trapped in such a dark and brittle state of understanding self, others, and our connections to them. 
These illustrations are actually meant to transform and free our hearts, not to add extra rules. The law is do not murder, but adhering to the law is not the primary point. The law is the, adhering to the law is the joyful consequence of a Christ-like, others-centered heart. Imagine a dirty cup. Someone cleans the visibly dirty parts on the outside, places it back on the shelf. It's open shelving, so it looks nice, shiny. Only when someone tries to use the cup do they realize that the inside is still filthy. It was never really cleaned. It's rather easy to clean the outside and leave the inside dirty. But if one washes the inside of the cup, it's almost impossible to not also wash the outside as well. So it is thus with the law and a kingdom heart. You can follow the law without a kingdom heart. But if you are washed from the inside and have cultivated a kingdom heart like Christ, you will, as a matter of course, follow the law. Actually now, I want to skip ahead a few sections in the Sermon on the Mount, and this isn't printed in your bulletin, sorry, I didn't want to make sure I'll read too much. But these ideas stem from the same concepts we're talking about. So we've defined our terms, we've asked how to value the lives of others, but how do we respond when faced with people who don't value our life? Matthew 5.38, Jesus says, you've heard of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? I say, do not resist one who is evil. If you're slapped on the right cheek, turn to him the other. If someone makes you give them their tunic, give them their cloak. If someone takes advantage of you, forcing you to walk a mile, willingly go too. If someone begs for money, do not refuse. Now, the old eye for an eye command was actually meant to curb vendetta. It was to keep the punishment fitting the crime so that it did not escalate into uh, family or tribal vengeance and have violence surge. But now, Jesus is deepening the command. He's not undoing it. And he says, instead of preventing escalation, now the vision is for peacemaking. He continues in verse 43. You've heard about loving your neighbor but hating your enemy. Well, I say, love your enemies and pray for those who are out to get you. I want you to be different. I want you to be obvious sons and, and daughters of the Father. I want you to be so in line with the character of God that you are as perfect as he is. Dale Bruner calls this radical undefensiveness. I think that sums it up. The idea isn't to become a doormat, but it's to have a poise, a certain poise that allows us to know so deeply who we are and whose we are that even in the face of enemies who are out to deride us and maybe even out to harm, or in extraordinary cases, possibly out to murder us, we can remember their humanity, their imago Dei, and love them. Now, this is important. All of Jesus' examples are interpersonal ones. They are not examples of whole institutions oppressing or causing violence against individuals or groups. Please Never stand by while others are getting hurt. We're called to seek justice. That's a big part of the gospel. And Jesus isn't ex exactly telling us what to do precisely in each situation, but he's laying down illustrations to demonstrate the spirit in which we should do them. Interpersonally, as Bruner says, we're called neither to cower 
nor get even. And after all, showing the other cheek is not remotely cowardice, it's courageous. I actually once witnessed this in a very dramatic fashion. I was working at a Christian youth camp, and the executive director asked two staff members, myself included, to come view a plot of land the camp was negotiating to buy. The owner of the land had given him the understanding that he could drive on the land and view it. We hopped in a Jeep and drove onto the man's farm, past the house and the barns, and we turned up the edge of a cornfield and were going up high on the hill, off-roading. We were shocked and scared when a pickup truck roared up behind us, a man screaming out the window, obscenities. He drove through the field, crushing what I could only presume is his corn, and the driver jumped out, rutting at us, swinging punches in a red-hot rage. Turned out, the landowner's son lived on the property and knew nothing about any selling negotiations or verbal permission to drive on the property. And he was not happy. The executive director stopped the Jeep and jumped out. And he was, yeah, he's not an old man, he was young and strong and capable, the executive director. The landowner wanted a fist fight. But instead of fighting back, which he very much could have done, or running away, the camp director simply kept attempting to speak calmly to this son, meanwhile using his very considerable coordination and agility to dodge and sidestep every punch. I mean, it was literally like a like, I mean, I was watching it. I was like, what should I do? Um, this went on for a while until the enraged landowner's son was confounded enough by this radically undefensive maturity that he stopped swinging and began to listen to what he had to say. We see here an example of what will become natural for us if we are filled with a truly other-centered love. We are not controlled by anger or contempt. Then, as again, Dallas Willard says, when we are injured, the world does not become our injury. We see God, we see ourselves in his hands, and we see the injurer as more than one who has imposed or hurt us. We recognize his humanity, his pitiful limitations, and we see him under God. And we're to pray for enemies until we grow in our own hearts God's agape love for them. For people who seem against us, yes, and also even people who seem against God or who set themselves contrary to the ways of God. We're to love them. We're in a tribal, polarized moment in our culture. The stats apparently tell us more than has been since the Civil War or something like that that has become a petri dish for growing hate toward one another. We nurse our hatred toward the enemy, politically or otherwise, justifying it because of what they believe or maybe because how much we think they hate us. Friends, that is precisely what Jesus is asking us never to do. We are to earnestly love our enemies and see them as God does. <sighs> This is Jesus filling it full, guys. And it has ratcheted it up a few notches. This sounds hard, but we need this. We need to hear Jesus flesh out for us this commandment that's intended to protect and proclaim the value of life. If we hear this and feel the pain of conviction 
and the amount of hard heart work it will take to become this kind of person, and we'd really rather just kind of numb or ignore it, ignore it. We're taking away the possibility of developing a kingdom heart like Christ. So my dad is a retired physician. One of my dad's colleagues was treating a wound on the bottom of a patient's foot. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to describe it. I'm committed to keeping my sermon not gross. Um, but the doctor ordered an x-ray, and guess what they found? A matchbox car. Not pieces of it, the whole thing. Maybe it was a smaller one. I don't know. Now, how could this man have a matchbox car embedded in his foot? Because he was suffering from a disease that caused him to lose all feeling in his feet. He couldn't feel pain at all. None. When he slipped his foot into a boot weeks earlier, he didn't feel that his grandson had left one of his toy cars in it. He walked around on that all day, full pressure of his body weight on it. People with feeling in their feet would never do that. It cut his foot open and lodged itself inside. Now, just like how we need pain, we need it to tell us when we're endangering ourselves, we need the law and Jesus' filling of it so that we know when we break it or when we don't live with the kingdom heart in its fullness. Because if we numb ourselves to its guidance and, of course, directed by the Holy Spirit, we would endanger ourselves with sin, malice, anger, revenge, etc. And we wouldn't know the fullness of the healthy and flourishing life we were meant to have. My concluding question for us is this. What impact do transformed kingdom hearts have on us and those around us? Well, in short, we will effectively live and proclaim the gospel. And our lives would be better for it. Again, this wasn't a list of rules aiming to create specific behaviors. Jesus wasn't saying... Every time you're in a solemn religious ceremony, think hard about who you have a riff with and leave every time in order to solve it. He was saying, be the kind of person that is so focused on protecting and proclaiming the value of life, so filled with the love of God toward others, so emptied of self-conceit and anger toward others, that it would be natural to see them leave such a service to reconcile with a brother or sister. Be the kind of person who would peaceably work through a legal case be the kind of person who turns the other cheek. Be the kind of person who does not hate enemies, but loves and prays for them. This is contrary, Jesus realizes, to the way the rest of the world works. This is not the path our fallen instincts left to their own devices seek to take us. Even the church or Christians as a whole have not consistently demonstrated this. It's maybe left us a bit confused. This is really hard. This is countercultural, counter instinctual work. To Jesus, Jesus says to that, precisely, that is by design. If we live this countercultural way, we will astonish those around us. Through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit's guidance, this is possible. Miracles are possible. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once said, we're called to be a surprising people. By living out a kingdom heart individually and by living with kingdom hearts as a community, 
It's like within a parched and angry desert world, we grow a lush, vibrant oasis. Others come upon the oasis and they're surprised. What? I didn't know the world had this in it. I, I didn't know about shade and water and beautiful plants. I only know what I'd, knew what I'd experienced, and now I'm seeing that people can live differently. 1 Peter 2 says the same thing. Our New Testament passage today, as you put away malice and slander, you'll be built into a spiritual house by God, the living stone, one that is holy, set apart, that represents God on earth. And this is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I extend that invitation to you as well. Let's be people with kingdom hearts who are transformed from the inside out by God's extravagant love and protect and proclaim the value of human life. You pray with me. Lord, sometimes conviction is deep and hard and feels like there's a lot of work to do. But in that, I ask that you would bind ourselves to you, that we would come to you, whether we're weary or heavy laden or any of the things we just sang about, and we would let you do the work in our hearts, Lord, to change us, renew us, make us to be like you, give us love for everyone around us, and I pray, Lord, you'd give us the gift of a kingdom heart. Amen. Please stand. Respond to God's word.